A reading from James 1, 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, we just heard uh, in the gospel reading that uh, it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Uh, and um, whatever that may mean uh, in the context of Jesus' ministry, it most certainly means that it is your pleasure, your delight, your, something you enjoy to give us gifts that are bigger than our capacity to desire them. That your gifts for us it's not that they fall short of what we desire. It's that they're far, far bigger than what fits within our desires. And therefore, the gifts you give are beyond our wildest imaginations. And yet, so often, we believe otherwise. And so, Father, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit that you will persuade our souls now of your goodness and that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And that it is your pl good pleasure to give us the very best things that satisfy the deepest desires of our souls. So persuade us of that because our hearts are slow to believe. So come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please uh, sit down, and uh, we're going to focus on that first little reading from the book of James. You might have noticed, though, that both our readings on uh, page 7 and 8, those are, if it's, if it's not uh, clear to you, those are two excerpts from uh, the New Testament, two different books within the New Testament, but they both uh, share a theme about um, uh, hanging in there. Perseverance. Don't give up. Stay steadfast to the end. And uh, that, you know, that addresses, that theme addresses a problem, a difficulty that every single follower of Jesus faces one time or another. Uh, here's, here's the problem. Every single follower of Jesus will be tempted at some point to give up. Maybe you're 
Maybe you immediately identify with that. Maybe right now you're like, man, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking about giving up. And there's different ways that there's different ways that that looks. So sometimes it's really dramatic. Like we're tempted to just just throw in the towel in this whole following Jesus thing. We're just going to give up on Christianity entirely. Sometimes it's that. Maybe that's where you are. I don't know. More often, it's something more subtle, something even that we can keep secret. There's a temptation at one point or another just to begin editing Jesus subtly out of parts of our lives where we find him not very useful. But that's a kind of giving up, too. There comes a point at which all of us face temptations to kind of give up. And in those times, some of the questions that come up, even if we're not explicit about it, is things like, man, is God worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is God there? Have I wasted my time on God? Can you identify with any of those questions? And some of us here, even if you're not, if you don't identify as a, as a follower of Jesus, you don't identify as a Christian, nevertheless, um, if you're here, you must be in one way or another investigating it, and these are questions that are inevitably going to come up for you. I mean, if, if, if I was considering whether or not to follow Jesus, I'd want to know whether or not it's worth it in the long haul, right? So, you want to know if a ship is seaworthy before you get on it. And if you can identify with any of those questions, the questions whether or not Jesus is worth it, whether or not God is worth it, whether or not we should give up, uh, then these, both these excerpts, these readings are for you, but particularly the first one. Just take a look at the first line on page 7, that reading from James, it says this, Blessed or happy is the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the author of this excerpt, excerpt we think is a well, is somebody called James, and James says something like this. He says, listen, everybody goes through trials, uh, but don't give up. He says, in effect, uh, sometimes following Jesus is extremely difficult, but nevertheless, hang in there. Why, James, why should we hang in there? And he says, here's why. On the other side of temptation or trial or difficulty or temptation to give up, James says, on the other side of all that, there's a gift. And that gift on the other side of it is so magnificent and so beautiful and so valuable that it will backfill your entire journey, difficult as it is, with a meaning and a joy that will never fade. So don't give up because you won't regret it. Now, that's basically James's message, but it brings up a question for me, and it's this. If following Jesus can get really difficult sometimes, but that if it's also true that it's worth it in the end, then how do we hang in there through the trials and the temptations that inevitably come? How do we hang in there so that we eventually get the reward in the end? Does that make sense? Uh, how do we deal with the temptation to give up, either, either the big dramatic kind where we just give up on Christianity or the subtle kind where we just edit Jesus out of the particular area where we find him not useful. How do we deal with that? Well, uh, I'm going to point out two things. First of all, we're going to talk about um, what is the deep source of the temptation to give up? Where does it come from? What's the temptation underneath the temptation? That's number one. Number two, 
what's the remedy for the temptation underneath all the other temptations? All right, let's get into it. What's the source of the temptation underneath everything else? Take a look at verse 13. Uh, James here describes, you can look for it, something about life cycle of temptation and sin. Verse 13, when you're tempted, or when you go through a really hard time and you're tempted to give up, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, here's the life cycle. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, you see in verse 15 that life cycle there? Uh, desire gives birth to sin. Sin gives birth uh, to death. Now, we're going to talk about that life cycle in a couple minutes. But first, I want to show you that earlier than that, there's also something like a habitat. There's a habitat where that life cycle thrives. There's a habitat where sin and temptation thrives and grows. Temptation and sin can't really grow and thrive without the right habitat. And that habitat is a lie about God. Look back at verse 13. I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit. It's as if James is saying this. It, listen, uh, when you're going through a really rough time, it's as if James says, pay careful attention to what it is that comes to your mind when you think about God. It's as if James says, have you ever noticed a tendency to think that God is the problem? You ever notice that? Uh, have you ever uh, found yourself thinking maybe God's kind of stringing you along? Do you ever get a sneaking suspicion that God is really not all that good after all, or at least not all that good for you? And it's as if James says, be very careful about that kind of thinking. Why? Because every temptation to give up on God or to edit God out of a portion of your life thrives in a habitat of a mind that is beginning to think that God is my opponent and not my father. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to illustrate this with a made-up story. Everybody say, made-up story. Made so this is not about you, okay? But unless you find that it... Anyways, this is a story about Joe. And, and um, if your name is Joe, it's not, it's not you. Um, now, Joe, Joe, things, Joe's got a pretty good life. Like, from the outside, Joe is somebody that other people want to be when they grow up. Uh, he's, he's not really young, but he's also not old. Um, he's clipping along. He's got two kids. Uh, he's got a uh, great wife, all that kind of stuff. He's got a demanding job. And he's a Christian. He goes to church. He's active. He gives. He does all the things. There's lots of boxes that are ticked. Everything's going great. The trouble is that for Joe on the inside, it, it's pretty difficult. And it's been difficult for a long time, but Joe doesn't talk about it. Um, it be, and part of the reason for that is that it's it, nothing cataclysmic. It's just been a slow, steady increase of stress. Um, he, he's got a new position. He's got a new boss. Uh, he's working on these really uh, high-pressure projects. He knows that he can no longer rest on past successes 
And he also knows that he's not young enough to be impressive for how much he's, been, he's accomplished for his age. And so he works really, really long hours, and he's really trying hard. He is doing everything right. Trouble is, when he comes home, he realizes that he's increasingly distant from his kids. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he feels really guilty because he misses stuff. Um, and then whenever he looks at his wife, he, he just, she just looks disappointed. Now, Joe hasn't failed very much in life, but right now he feels like he is failing in everything that really matters the most. Now, imagine that Joe has a conversation with God. Now, Joe generally is never honest when he prays because he's too pious for that. He's too well-behaved. But just imagine we caught him at, a, at an honest moment. And he, and he goes something like this. He goes, hey, God. Hey, where are you? What you up to? You see what's going on? Or are you checked out? Come on, God, talk to me, because I'm beginning to think that you're behind some of this. I'm beginning to think that, what, what are you baiting me? Like, is this fun for you? Are you tempting me? Because apparently you're strong, apparently you're competent, but check it out. It doesn't seem like that from where I'm sitting. And have you forgotten, God, I have done everything right? And you're not pulling your weight. And I'm sick and tired of going to church and hearing how good you are. And they even make me sing songs about how good you are. And I want you to get off your cosmic lazy boy and help. Now, pause there. Because underneath there, there's a, there's a habitat where temptation and sin be can begin to grow and thrive. Because temptation always wants to feed off a lie about God, that, that God is tempting me, that God is baiting me, that God cannot be trusted, that God's not good, at least not for me, that God's not going to come through for me, not for me, and not in the end. And now, in this context, Joe's behavior outwardly might still be good. He's still, people can still uh, admire him, even in the church. Um, he'll probably still go to church. But if you were to look into his soul, you would find that uh, his trust in God is starting to atrophy. His love for God is starting to cool down. And this is very important, Emmanuel. I want you to kind of lean in here. As his intimacy with God goes down, his selfish desire goes up. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, slow down, because I, I don't want to get this wrong. Des the Bible is not anti-desire, okay? Our strongest desires are originally good gifts from God. However, our desires are designed to feed into love for God and love for other people. That's why we said those two commandments earlier in the service. 
they were, our strongest desires were never designed to uh, focus in primarily on self. They were never meant to prioritize self. But what happens is this, as our uh, closeness with God cools down, those desires turn in on ourselves. And when they turn in on ourselves, they also get more demanding. They get hotter and they begin to feel like needs. And as all that happens, as our closeness with God goes down, as our desires turn selfish and then ramp up and turn into felt needs, what often happens is God starts to look like an obstacle. God begins to look like an obstacle to what it is we really feel like we most urgently need. And then that moment, you, you can, you, we will find the quickest way to jettison God so that we can get what we want. Or at least that's the danger. See, Emmanuel, temptation comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And it can be, depend upon our personalities. It can depend on our preferences, our orientations, our opportunities. But nevertheless, all of it, different as they can be, it all springs from desire, divorced from God, and centered on self. But, but this is where the tragedy comes. Because here's the deal with sin and temptation. Sin always... Uh, promises to satisfy those desires that have turned into needs. But the tragedy is they just don't deliver. Um, sin poses as our ally, but the reality is that sin is our executioner. It kills us. Look at verse 15. This is the, so to speak, life cycle. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, uh, brings forth death. I called it a life cycle. It, it's, it's actually a death cycle. Uh, since I moved to New York, uh, I've gained some proficiency in killing mice. Do you know the secret? Uh, you just give the mouse what it wants. You take the object of the mouse's most urgent desire and you stick it right in the middle of a trap. And the mouse thinks it's satisfied right up until it's dead. And that's how sin works. We imagine that God is an opponent and sin is an ally. Our desires then turn in on self and lead us to death. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Shall we talk about a remedy? Okay. Take a look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, in the gospel reading, don't, you can turn there later, but it, it says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good gifts. Okay, okay. can you look at that, uh, verse 16, and can you see how you kill temptation and sin? You kill it by killing the habitat. Sin and temptation thrive when we believe that God is not good, he's not our ally, he's an opponent, all that kind of stuff. Sin and temptation uh, are undermined when you see the goodness of God and that he loves to give you good gifts and better gifts than you can imagine. 
So what James is saying here is he says, listen, don't forget that every good gift, I mean every really good gift that lasts forever and that gets better with time comes from your father. You need to see his goodness, says James. You've got to see your goodness and that's when you'll find your freedom. Let me illustrate with Joe again. See, here's the thing. What does Joe need? What does Joe need? You know what he doesn't need? He doesn't need a guilt trip. He's got a lot of that. That's not what he needs. But what he needs is to grasp verse 18. He needs to know that God, of God's own will, brought forth Joe by the word of truth so that Joe could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits of his creatures, what does that mean? It means the first installment of the new creation, the renovation of humanity. See, friends, that verse encapsulates God's good vision for us. It reaches back to Jesus, and it leans forward into an eternity, and it's a better vision than any vision we could achieve for ourselves. Go back to Joe. You you remember Joe's kind of tantrum or honest moment? Imagine that God spoke back to him, and it's as if God said something like this. Joe, I hear you, and I... I haven't been anywhere but near you. It's as if God says, I know it's really hard right now, but Joe, you must understand that I have a bigger vision for your life than comfort. Joe, I want you to be the first fruits of a new creation. I I want to give you a whole new life. Uh, What does that mean? It means it's as if God says, I want you to become a new kind of human being, renovated in such a way that you begin to reflect Jesus Christ and then increasingly reflect Jesus Christ over the whole of your life. It's as if God says, I want you to be someone whose desires are perfectly fulfilled in loving me and being loved by me. It's as if God says, I know it's hard right now, but right now you're feeling the emptiness of a life seeking fulfillment in anything other than me. And it's important, it's as if God says, it's important, Joe, that you feel that painful as it is. Don't think that I'm sitting on a cosmic lazy boy. You need to remember the word of truth. You need to remember the word of truth that you heard at the beginning. You need to remember how I sent my son, Jesus Christ. And you need to remember how he experienced all of your pressures. You need to remember that he experienced all of your pain and far more. You need to remember that Jesus was a disappointment to his family too. And you need to remember that Jesus was a professional failure in his own way. And you need to remember that Jesus died on the cross to ransom you from the sin that's trying to kill you now. And so the father would point Joe to Jesus and say, Joe, you got to trust him. you got to trust his goodness. you got to trust his kindness. He's my good and perfect gift to you. Now, let's think about this in a different way. The book of James wants us to see something very important and that's hard to believe. That God is good and that God is a good father and that he's good even when things are terribly difficult. And even as I say that, I can hear somebody saying, how dare you say that? How dare you claim that God is good in the midst of what I'm going through? Who do you think you are? And if that's what comes up for you, it's totally plausible. Let me explain. Look at verse 12. 
Blessed or happy or rejoicing is the man who remains steadfast under trial because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Say, crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, how can you prove that that's true for us? Like James right there is saying, uh, there's a payoff at the end, this thing called the crown of life, and it makes everything worth it. So hang in there. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, how can we know that that's true? And how can we know that that's true given the horrendous thing I'm going through right now? Well, the reason we can be sure that's true for us is because it was already true for Jesus. Like, think about Jesus for a second. If anybody has any reason to question the goodness of God the Father, it's, it's Jesus, right? He did everything right. He was like, and where did it get him? tortured, executed. By whom? By the religious establishment colluding with the political machine. He could have concluded that his father had let him down. Could you blame him? But he didn't take the bait. Instead, he was steadfast in trusting his father, and he trusted that his father would prove faithful despite all the suffering. And do you remember the result? Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and he received the crown of life. Say, crown of life. God raised him from death. And that's why Christians follow Jesus. Jesus already rose from the dead. Jesus gained the crown of life after his suffering, and he promises to share his crown of life with everybody who will trust him, not because we deserve it, but because he loves to give us good and perfect gifts. And what all this means for you is that God wants to give you really good things. Gospel, Jesus said, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. James says, of his own will, his own plan, his own resolve, his own intention, his own desire, he brought us forth through the word of truth. So Emmanuel, God desires to give you the crown of life, and he desired it so much that Jesus died and achieved it for you. And that means that right now God is not checked out. Whatever you're going through, he's not checked out. God is not on a lazy boy. He hangs upon a cross in Christ for you. And when you see that sacrificial love, and when you see that he's already purchased the crown of life for you, and when you see that, that God is not your opponent, but that he is the kindest father imaginable, that is when temptation will begin to lose its power. That's when you won't even want to edit him out of a little bit of your life. You'll want to grant more of your life to be surrendered to him because the more you surrender to him, the more all of your life is animated by good and perfect gifts. So Emmanuel, remember that when, you're, when the day of temptation comes, you're not going to be instantly tempted to some heinous crime. It's going to be more subtle than that. Your first temptation will be to begin to believe that God's not quite as good as you've been led to believe. And that's where you got to join the battle. 
And you do that by running back to the word of truth, to rehearse who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus is for you in this moment and the glorious eternal gifts he wants to give you that are so much bigger than your capacity to desire. You've got to, make all, you've got to see all of that in plain color before you. And you've got to remember that you belong to a God who entered into your suffering. And that he experienced a deeper pain than whatever you're experiencing now. And that Jesus already achieved the crown of life for you. And then you can see that if God can take the horror of the cross and make it the source of life and eternal joy for Jesus, that if he can do that for him, then he can do that for you in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just ask you this. What better hope could you possibly live for? So friends, don't give up. Jesus went to the cross, and you know he never regretted it. You won't regret hanging in there with him either. But if you jettison Jesus, then there will be a day when all we have left is regret. So don't give up. Don't give in. Look at Jesus and trust his goodness. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.